Ed, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I'm Michael Reddington. I'm an executive resource and certified forensic interviewer. I'm the president of Inquisive and the creator of the disciplined listening method. I'm very, very fortunate that I was able to have, uh, for me, a very entertaining career in the world of interview and interrogation, and then migrate that experience and expertise over to the business world, where now I really focus on teaching people how to apply strategic, ethical observation and persuasion techniques in all of their business conversations, whether it's leadership, coaching, sales, negotiation, candidate interviewing, and beyond. The From the Heart podcast is presented by Orange Kiwi Consulting. The three most challenging transitions owners face, scale, sale, and succession, often result in a costly and confusing journey, but it doesn't have to be that way. Orange Kiwi helps their clients succeed where others fail by navigating the challenges others can't. Find out how Orange Kiwi helps you avoid the costly and confusing journey to realize the results you're looking for with less stress and more satisfaction. Visit their website, orangekiwiLLC.com. Choose Contact Us. Enter the promo code HLG2020 for a complimentary 30-minute consultation. We had Michael on a couple of weeks ago. We've been doing these thriving in times like these calls for the last year during COVID and really trying to teach our, our associates and members and friends and clients, you know, how do, how do we do just that? How do we thrive in, in difficult times that we're all facing with COVID and, and everything else going on in our world? Um, my good buddy, Hector Garcia of NBN Creative introduced me to Michael. We brought you in, you, you dazzled our group. Uh, the feedback we've been getting has been outstanding. Let me start with a question. Uh, word, two words that you put together there a moment ago, disciplined listening. I'm curious, we, we often hear that some of the biggest problems in communication and where relationships break down is when one or more or both parties or multiple parties in the relationship, it's not always just two people, obviously, aren't good listening or aren't listening very well. Talk about disciplined listening and what, how does, where did that term come from? And just define that maybe a little bit better for me. Oh, I just want to clarify that. Has my wife been any of the people you've been talking to? Talking hey, not about yet, not yet. We're going to go there. We're going to talk about Thanksgiving dinner and what it's like around the table in a little while. Yeah, but uh, we'll leave Yeah, it. yeah, unfortunately, yeah. I'm sure there's some stories there. Sure. Um, the disciplined listening, really what we focus on is how do we help people put themselves in a position to maximize the strategic intelligence they can acquire during any conversation and apply that intelligence towards achieving a goal. A lot of times when we think about listening, is it just hearing the words that somebody is saying? Or we, we hear people talk about being present in the moment, but what does it truly mean to be present in the moment and encourage people to share more information? Well, how do we do that? So when we set out to create the disciplined listening method, coming from the world of investigations, I was very fortunate that I was a blank page. So I had the opportunity to research across the spectrum of business communication, not being beholden to, to any specific discipline or, or silo, pull out all of the wonderful pieces that we thought really fit in with what we were doing, and then integrate them with the best practices from the world's leading non-confrontational interrogation techniques on both sides of the Atlantic. And with that, we wanted to address the concept of disciplined listening from sides because listening is cyclical. 
So yes, we wanted to provide people with the skills, perspectives, and techniques to be much more studious observers and be able to apply those observations. There's also the persuasive communication side to that coin as well, because the more persuasive we are in our communication, the more comfortable people will be sharing information, the more information they share, the more intelligence we can acquire. And now it becomes this nonstop cycle of how we communicate with others, inspires what they share with us, which increases what we learn and drives the results that we can achieve. So with disciplined listening, it really is about I guess the, I should say it this way before I just ramble. It starts with understanding prior to any important engagement, how can this engagement get me at least one step closer to achieving my long and short-term goals? Okay. And with that in mind, now I can begin to really look for not just check the box information, but strategic intelligence, really try to get between somebody's ears and understand not just what they're telling or showing me, but why. What are their emotional shifts telling me? How is the context of the situation impacting my observations? And then applying that towards whatever we're looking to achieve. So the goal could be to get a, com- a, a, a prospect to buy. The goal could be to get a child to admit stealing cookies from the cookie jar. The goal could be getting a, 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 a witness to testify truthfully or what have you. So let me ask you this question. We talk about how skills and talents are either we're either born with it or we develop it. I'm guessing obviously there's a mix here. When did you realize that this was, cause you probably were born with some skills in this area that maybe others might not have been, but you've worked your butt off to get there too. When did you realize that this was something that you did well, or was it something you didn't do well? And that's why you decided to develop it. How did that process get you to, to where you are today doing this for a living? How many hours do we have to go over this? Yeah, well, there you go. That's what we talked about before we recorded. How long is this going to go? Yeah. Um, the, the, the Cliff's Notes version is a lot of the foundation was likely set with my upbringing. And that yeah. starts with my father and my brother and how we, and that I have a very positive, always have relationship with my father and brother, but just how the experiences we had together, how my father tried to teach us to think and operate. So I, I think that's where a lot of it started. And then, you know, experiences that my brother and I had to get ourselves into and then out of along the way. Professionally, I started out, and if I live long enough to retire, I promise hmm. I'll go back to working with special needs children and adults. And many of them had either were born with disabilities or had survived atrocious scenarios where their ability to communicate was significantly impacted. So learning to communicate with them was likely creating or really the pouring the foundation of, of this listening and evaluation process without me realizing it. And any number of jobs and different experiences helped me understand the perspective of so many different people Really, when I finally got into investigations as a career, it was an it was an accident. It was a part time job that has gotten wildly out of control. <laughs> and I remember the first interrogation I ever did. I caught an employee stealing from the company I was working at at the time. I was pretty sure I did. I didn't, I didn't have any video, but just did the math. It appeared like he stole. So I called my district manager, shout out to Adam, if he ever hears this, hmm. and says, and said, hey, Adam, this is what I think I've got. What do you think I should do? And Adam said, sounds like you got him. Do you think you can get him to admit? Now, I have to say yes. Like, I can't say no. He just no, hired me for it. this yeah. position. So I say yes, hoping that he's going to tell me, cool, here's what you need to do. Instead, he said, great, call me back when it's done and hung up the phone. Hmm. I'm like, what? All right. Well, now, yeah, got to figure this so, out. 
I'd rather be lucky than good. I did get a small admission from him, a little bit more than what we thought he did, which I'm sure is only a fraction of what he really did, whatever it goes in the win column. But then after that, I had three, back to back to back, I had three far more substantial investigations that Adam came down and, and assisted me with. And after conducting those interrogations, that's when, and I, I even called my dad, that's when I thought at that point, I was like, wait a minute, I really might be onto something. And then it was when I attended my first interview and interrogation training class by a company that hired me six years later to, to work for them. Um, by the time I walked out of that class, the rainbows sprouted, the clouds parted, yeah. the sun shined through. And I said, I think this is for me. I started thinking this is for me. So you mentioned something that really struck with me. You mentioned special needs. We have two grandsons that have autism that live here in our home. Uh, you know, I may have talked about that a little bit before, but yes. um with with people who are not as able to communicate verbally as you and I potentially, well, mm -hmm. if I can, but you certainly do. Um, I mean, I have a I have podcast, I can communicate a little bit, <laughs> but you know, you have a lot of nonverbal and I have an expert in nonverbal communication, Blanca Cobb coming on in a couple of weeks. And we've talked a lot this week already. So much of communication is nonverbal. And obviously mm -hmm. you probably become a master at reading what people are not saying verbally by what they're saying in their face. And we talked a little bit before recording about micro expressions and facial tics and what your, yeah. what your eyes and mouth and cheeks and nose and so forth are telling others. Mm -hmm. I would imagine with special needs kids or special needs individuals, adults, that that's huge because I know my grandsons can't communicate verbally the way maybe other kids their ages can, but teach me a little bit about that, about how to, you know, just forget that we're recording and anybody may be listening today, tell Ed Hart, how can I read my grandsons a little bit better by what they're not able to express with words? No pressure there. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, no at all. Yeah, pressure's <laughs> now on, Michael. I'm going to yeah, pause yeah. and we'll just have a conversation here. No, context is king. Yeah. And, and I certainly can't speak for Bianca. Um, for me, especially coming out of the investigations world, uh, and I know this isn't the question you asked, just to use That's it right. as a setup. People will often say, how do you know when someone's lying? How do you catch somebody when there's lying, when they're lying? You, you, you really don't. And there's lots of, you know, I might've just offended who knows how many people that will <laughs> hear this, but really what we do in that scenario is we don't see behavioral indications that somebody lied. We see behavioral indications that their comfort level has changed. There's mm -hmm. been some sort of emotional shift and now they're rather more or less comfortable than they previously were. And we have to evaluate that within the totality of circumstances, which includes the context in which the conversation is happening. So when people will challenge myself or my former teammates on the accuracy of our observations, one of the examples that we will give is young children. It, young children who, who are learning to speak or haven't yet learned to speak. We can go all the way back to babies. Sure. When as a parent, I have a young son, as a brand new parent, it didn't take me very many days to figure out what my son needed based on how and when he was crying. So things like the time of day, um, things like where we were in his daily routine, what had we just done or had we not mm -hmm. done yet, the type of cry that he was giving, the tone, the volume. Yeah, is he hungry, duration. angry, poopy diaper, uh, you know, something, you know, within a few few days, you can figure out which cry means what, sure. And, and as we grow into adults, I don't know if it's because of how we're fed this information sometimes or because we're all just looking for shortcuts or, or we want absolutes in our lives, wherever we can have them. I feel, one man's feeling, mm -hmm. that 
we begin to drop that contextual awareness piece because it's just easier for us if we can make blankets assumptions and X always equals Y. And it's, it's just not the case. So to finally get back and begin to answer the question that you asked, <laughs> That's um, okay. and, having, and having never met either one of your grandsons, right? Um, again, context becomes king. So I'm sure that both, I believe you said they're both boys, correct? Yeah, nine and six, yeah. So I'm imagining that both of them have their general daily routines. Mm -hmm. And I have worked with autistic children in the past, and I'm sure they both have for lack of a better word, triggers or sensory sensitivities that are more likely to change their immediate mood communication style at any given time. So from an evaluation standpoint, these are the things that we want to try to stay as aware of as possible. Because the more time you spend with them, the more you're going to get a read on exactly what they look like when they're really happy, exactly mm -hmm. what they look like when they're really interested, exactly what they look like when they're really tired. You know, things as, as parents and grandparents that we learn, we can start catching the shifts earlier when we're more aware of how the environment around them is changing. Because more often than not, their shift in mood and communication and behavior, like any of us, is going to be driven by something in the environment changing right. around them. The room is hot. The room is cold. The door is open and the wind blew. The TV show went off. My food is too hot or too cold. Like there, there could be any yeah. number of things. So where this becomes a math problem is as quickly as possible, associating the behavior shift that we observed with the trigger that we believe kicked it off and then asking ourselves, why did this person's behavior change like it did on time to this trigger in the context of this situation? And that's where we take that graduation from, well, he looks angry or, yeah. you know, in my old world, I think he lied to me to understanding the situation. And one last quick thing I should probably mention yeah. is, and I'm sure you have this already, is look for things or listen for things that are just different. A lot of times when we spend a lot of time with somebody, we get used to what's normal for them. And when something is different, it, A, it might not register because we could be distracted. B, it might register, but we might not think a whole lot of it. So then by the time we do, it's a bigger problem. So one of the things that we talk about is when we believe we see a change, we see a difference, they're acting differently now than they normally do in this situation, or they're acting differently now than they were just a moment ago, is to address it. And it doesn't have to be address it externally, you know, John, what's wrong with you, but at least address it mentally, like start going through our almost if then chart in our head, like what could have just changed? Where sure. could this be going? So now we can try to get ahead of what will happen next instead of being in a purely reactionary place. So you're looking for some triggers and some things that might've happened to cause that behavior or that, or to manifest that way to a certain extent. So there's a lot of audiences that will hopefully that will listen to this interview. And I'm not going to ask you in the next 45 minutes to give away all your trade secrets, because that's number one, impossible to do in 45 minutes. This has taken you years to develop. But let's just kind of high level this for a moment. Let's talk to that man or woman who's in their car driving right now and listening to this podcast on their way to a sales call. They're getting ready to go talk to that prospect that they're trying to convert to become a client. We talked about this a little bit when you did our workshop a couple of weeks ago. And I know that's, again, it's situational. You can't just say, well, try this when you drive in there in 15 minutes and it's going to work. Nothing, there's no pixie dust here. But 
how has what you've developed over the years and your your talent of doing this how would you what, what type of advice because i know you do a lot of sales training a lot of leadership training and you do work in those situations where you've got an audience full of salespeople. what type of message would you give to that individual who might be going in there right now to really talk to that really difficult client or that prospect that they're just not making any progress on anything that might trigger a, okay, maybe we'll get them to start opening up if you do this. Any thoughts? Oh, good luck, especially if it's yeah. 15 minutes from now. Stay I safe, pay attention to the road. We yeah. don't want any accidents directly attributed to our conversation. Exactly. Um, but the, the two things that I would tell them, especially if this conversation is impending, like the, the seconds are ticking down, we're, we're clear for launch. <laughs> I would tell them two things. Stay within yourself and let the conversation come to you. Plain and simple. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's not get lost in the weeds. Let's not try to create this really intricate game plan that we may or may not lose control of inside 10 seconds. Stay within yourself and let the conversation come to you. Um, by staying within ourselves, hopefully we can literally just stay calm and keep our heart rate low. If we can keep our heart rate down, we can keep our blood and oxygen traveling through our brain at a normal rate of speed, which should hopefully keep our cognitive abilities fully functioning, where if they start pounding and that blood and oxygen starts flying through, we're not thinking as clearly as we should. So stay within yourself. You're there for a reason. They've taken this meeting with you. So that's, sure. a, that's a good sign. Step one, already. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So stay within yourself. You you know what you know at this point. So don't overthink it, just go in. The next piece is let the conversation come to you. Oftentimes, when any of us are put under stress, we go to what we know. So as sales professionals, far more often than not, the piece that we know the best is our own stuff, our own products, our own services, what we think makes them great, what we think differentiates them. The problem is, well, I guess there's several. To start with, if we feel particularly stressed at the beginning of the conversation and we go to what we know, hmm. it ends up being perceived that we're taking a bragging approach. This conversation is all about us. All I want to do is show you what I know. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. So not only is that just generally off-putting to people, but for those who are working in highly competitive environments, the unfortunate reality is for as different as we often feel ourselves, our services, and our products are, our competitors are often saying nearly identical things to us. So in reality, there is no difference. Like there really could be a, a significant difference between company A's customer service and product quality and companies B's. But if they're both saying the same thing to a customer that's not had any experience with either, well, then there's no difference. Right. The only way they're going to figure out if there's a difference is to have more experience with both and then decide. It's the so, Pepsi challenge to take yeah. the Pepsi challenge. You got to buy Coke. You got to take both. You know, you're don't you're, have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm going <laughs> yeah, to decide which I like, I got to try both. Yeah. So by being patient and letting the conversation come to us, we give ourselves the opportunity to observe more. We give ourselves the opportunity to learn more, which then in turn gives us the opportunity to be more effective. If we have say a 60 minute meeting slot and our goal is to confirm a proposal submission or confirm a second meeting or confirm a demo or a trial or what, you know, whatever that next step is. Well, we have 59 minutes and 59 seconds to get there. Mm -hmm. Let's not go trying to get that 10 minutes in. Let's let the conversation come to us. 
if I let somebody else go through their social niceties at the beginning of the conversation and allow them to guide the conversation and lead it, now they feel like they're in control. They feel like they're actually talking to someone who's willing to listen to them. I may hear a few things I can now add into my educational approach. And now if I have the opportunity to confirm whatever that next step is at the 45 or 50 minute mark, great. Because now hopefully the person I'm speaking with has more idea ownership in the conversation and I didn't push them off by rushing. One one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in the after an interrogation was don't appear needy Hmm. because the more needy you appear, the more control you give the other person. They can choose. There is a painful reality in the conversations that we have in all of the context that you mentioned at the beginning of the call. If we need to talk to somebody because they have information and we don't, well, then I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. You're not in control of that. They are in control. Absolutely. They're in hundred percent control yeah. because they're going to decide what to share and when to share it. So if we can embrace that and allow them to feel like they're in control of the conversation, but because we know where we want to go and we're confident in our ability to get there, we can just nudge and guide the conversation. So it's, it gets there at a more natural pace and we'll be more successful because if we chase, it ends up that like inverted magnet effect where we just push people away from us. Well, I've never done what you do for a living. And thankfully, my only experience in an interrogation room is what I see on TV. And I hope to keep it that way. I've certainly been interrogated and I've done my share as a parent and just in in life, we do that. Can you share, and I asked you this on our call a couple weeks ago too, and I, I don't remember your answer other than I loved it, the story. Is there a story or anything that comes to mind like that where, so you walk into the interrogation room, you've got somebody sitting at the table. I'm going to, I'm going to paint every detective TV show right now that we've all watched. And it's probably nothing like that. Maybe it's similar because most of them are the same on TV. So there must be some truth there. You got the, let's just say the guy sitting at the table and obviously he's not going to say boo. You know, he has the control because he has the information your job when you walk in is to get to the truth more than get him to confess. It's to get to the truth. Can you walk us through an example without, you know, telling us the story, who it is or anything, obviously protect the innocent here or the guilty in this case, but um, you know, any story come to mind that uh, would be fascinating or that you kind of think back on and think, wow, I can't believe I got this guy who wasn't going to talk. Trying to choose one. And yeah. How many are there? Fascinating. Who thinks what's fascinating, right? Um, I believe I recall the one that I told you because I find it humorous. So I'll go back to that one. Um, but, you know, when, when people, I guess two things. One, when people think it's fascinating, do they think it's fascinating because of the dynamics of the conversation or the crime under investigation or, or you know, whatever. For me, generally, the ones that stick with me the most are because something, and it may be little, memorable happened within the conversation. So the, the one that I shared with you was I was called to speak with a gentleman who was a senior executive and was about to get promoted. He was about to make, he was about to go from director to vice president, if I recall correctly. And during the promotion conversation, somebody said, well, wait a minute, hasn't he been suspected of fraud? And so they decided that they couldn't promote someone suspected of fraud until they figured out if he did it or not. Right. So they called us, I get tapped for the investigation. And I call the guys back and I, I say, yes, I can do it. Sure. It was like a Monday. They wanted me out on Thursday. I can make that happen. No problem. I said, what did the investigation show you? I said, well, we didn't do an investigation. 
said, well, why? They said, well, we don't have the time. So if you can get him to confess, we're going to fire him. But if you can't, we're going to make him vice president. Wow. So it's either awesome. up or down based on your conversation. Yeah. Great. No pressure. No pressure at all. Yeah. So I go out there and I talk to their team and we get the room set up and they're bringing this guy in. And one of their in-house investigators stopped me literally as I was going in to set up the room and said that they had received some autographed Jim Tomey pictures to give away for like as a charity fundraiser. They were going to sell raffle tickets or whatever. And they disappeared. And rumor had it that this guy had had them. So if I could get those back to you, that would be good. He's like, well, I'll add it to the list. Yeah. So I go in to set up the room. And just a quick note, as you talked about the TV shows, one of the things that us as certified forensic interviewers absolutely believe in is we do not sit behind a table when we interview anybody. Victim, witness, suspect, job hire, we just don't. It's a barrier that connotates authority or infers probably a better word, authority. It's a physical barrier that can block empathetic connection. Ed Hall's done a bunch of research into proximics. Judy Burgoon's done a bunch of research into expectation violation theory. Generally speaking, because I know we're short for time, um, we position the chairs roughly four feet apart, chest to chest, not okay. knee to knee. So nothing between the two. Nothing at all. So that way we give ourselves the maximum opportunity to connect with them and also a maximum observation opportunity. Because right. now I can see head to toe. There's no because you can see nonverbal in the toes all the way up to the forehead, basically. Yes, yes. And that's where we really rely on our peripheral vision to try to, you know, mentally check things at the same time. But that chair setup is more about the connection than it is about the observation. So this guy comes in. What's the old Jerry Seinfeld line? Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Uh, long story short. Yes, yeah, we're um, filling in a lot of blanks here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He ends up confessing to the fraud, which was great. And then at the literally at the end of the confession, as we are transferring to the written statement portion of this conversation, I say to him, can I just ask one more question? And he says, sure. And I just, I literally just looked at him and said, and how many days can you bring back the Jim Tommy pictures? And his eyes bug out of his head. Mm. And he says, I can bring him back tomorrow with the Mike Ditka footballs. Wow. And this, I mean, it's a silly thing. And I guess, you know, I probably didn't accurately set the stage, but the way the group that had brought me in was talking about the investigation and talking about all these different things, it was just kind of like an extra check to be like, oh, well, here's one more thing. Mm -hmm. So the, the way it kind of worked out from, I mean, this guy was six, I don't want to exaggerate. I'm going to say he was six, three, six, four. Yeah easily 250 260 and when he walked in the room he literally put his toes against mine to shake my hand in order to force me to have to look straight up at him when he walked mm -hmm. in so it kind of gives you the idea of his yeah. personality he was used to playing that size role to intimidate people and thought he could intimidate you as well so when you stay within yourself and you stay calm and you let the conversation come to you mm -hmm. these things tend to iron themselves out over time yeah so so to have that funny comical confession at the end you know that's that's not the serial killer story that some people might want to hear. Mm -hmm. um, but it was certainly very entertaining for me to go from how it started even before I met him to how the conversation started when I met him to the, oh yeah, at least I get a chuckle out of it at the end. So when I brought the statement down the hall to the executive team that was waiting for it, I walked in and I don't remember which one, one of the executives looked at me, spun his chair, I looked at me, said, well, did he admit to the fraud? Mm -hmm. And I kind of smiled and I said, well, I can get you your Mike Dicker footballs back. And that's nice. how we started the conversation. Yeah. So, you know, for my Northeast sarcastic personality, huh. it was I love like, it. 
there you go that's that that boston in you that's right we didn't talk about that we did before but um so in your bio it talks a lot about moving people from resistance to commitment i love that because in everyday conversation we face that just whether you're a leader a parent a salesperson you're dealing with people who are going to resist whether you're talking to potential fraud you know, you know folks that have committed fraud or criminals or what have you what is that I mean, it's in your bio for a reason, moving people from resistance to commitment. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that, you've already kind of hit on it, I think, but I'm curious how, I love stories. I mean, you can just answer all these questions with a story and I'm totally game with that and I'll leave it up to you, but talk about that, moving someone from resistance to commitment, what that means to you. Sure. So I guess I'll start this way. One of the realizations I came to when I was conducting the research that led to the creation of the discipline listening method and, and inspired the creation of Inquasive and eventually led to this conversation is that the cognitive process that interrogation suspects experience when they truthfully commit to saying I did it is essentially identical to the cognitive processes that customers experience when they commit to saying I'll buy it and employees experience when they commit to saying I'll do it. They might sound far apart, but lowest common denominator is resistance to commitment. It's just different scenarios involved. So for me, one of the golden opportunities that I had as a full-time investigator was my teammates and I were almost always asked to talk to people who absolutely didn't want to talk to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Not even just the suspect. If they wanted to the, talk, they wouldn't need you because they'd be talking yeah. to somebody else. Yeah. And that, the same holds true even for victims and witnesses. Like they don't want to relive the conversation. They don't want to have to continue to burden themselves and talk to one more person. So to some degree, pretty much everybody involved didn't want to talk to us. So one of the things that eventually I was able to embrace is the fact that in any given situation, people have more motivation to do what they want than what I want, which includes sharing information. So I literally prepare for every single important engagement by asking myself, why shouldn't this person do what I want them to do? Hmm. And why haven't they already done what I want them to do? And then I literally flip that traditional swap process on its ear. I build everything off of the weaknesses and threats, and I embrace my perceived weaknesses to create my communication strategies. Once I've done that, then that allows me to entirely reframe my perspective. And now this is no longer about winning. This is all about achieving the value I'm looking for at the end of the conversation, which means ego, back pocket, how do I need to communicate with somebody in a way where they can feel what they need to feel in order to choose to say or do what I need them to say or do? So that, again, that really speaks mm-hmm. to the ethos of at least the persuasive communication yeah. aspect of discipline listening. And my wife rolls her eyes because I literally apply that to everything. We buy mm-hmm. a car, we negotiate on a loan, we, ne- we paid for our own wedding and I negotiate, I, we negotiated yeah. every mm-hmm. little piece of that wedding. A funny story, which probably falls below everybody's radar. COVID trapped at home. Uh, my son outgrows the little place that we had in the backyard. So I bought him a big one. It shows up. The guy opens the door of the delivery truck and I can see the boxes are wrecked and there's one piece that's just shredded. I can't use it. It's a wooden piece. So I spent over a month trying to get the carry to replace it. They finally tell me they won't. So I call the manufacturer. I get on the phone with a woman who says, yes, yeah, send me this information. We'll take care of it. Three weeks later, nothing. So I send an email, no response. So I call again. 
I called in the first three times I called. I told them why I was calling. I asked for this specific person by name. The first time I just got disconnected. The second time I got transferred to another random person. And the third time I got transferred to a different random person. Hmm. All answering machines, by the way, didn't talk yeah. to anybody. So I, that was a Friday. So I waited till the following Monday. I take this exact same mindset in, and this time I don't tell them why I'm calling. I just tell them I need a customer service agent in response to a shipping issue. Now I get to a total brand new person Hmm. and I explain it to her in a way where I didn't tell her that I had already spoken with somebody, but made it sound like the process was in play. Thankfully, she was listening. She comes back and asks, have you already started? Now I say yes. On, I think it was January 11th, I had sent the last email, blah, blah, blah. Here it is. And she says, okay. And her voice is kind of like, okay, I, you know, I'll, I'll see if I can take care of this for you. Just send me the email. So she gives me her email address and the email address is first letter, last name. She had told me her name and her name is one of those that's common, but could be spelled seven different ways. Sure. So I say, I'll send the email as soon as we get off the phone. I just want to make sure I get it right. What's the correct spelling of your name? Hmm. Silence. Yeah. For, I don't know. Three or four seconds. And she says, uh, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I laugh and I say, well, if I'm going to ask you for help, the least I can do is have enough respect to spell your name correctly. Absolutely, yeah. She laughed, said thank you, gave it to me. I sent her the email. Within 15 minutes, I had the shipping confirmation that the new hmm. car was on the way. Yeah. So when we talk about these communication approaches, they literally apply to everything. My son is in preschool. I need to know what's going on from his teachers. I take the same approach. Mm-hmm. It's it, it doesn't, whether it's business development, business negotiation, coaching sales, or just simple communication like that, the same process applies. The word I'm hearing you not say, but it's resonating in my head is the word empathy. You're having empathy for the person. You're putting your per, yourself in the shoes of the other person to think about, okay, what are they thinking in this process? How can I get them to, it's not manipulation, but do what I want them to do or say what I want them to say or give me the result that I'm after if I don't understand where they are first? It sounds like that's it's a lot of what you're doing. 100%. It's respectfully driven influence. Yeah. It is having the foresight to understand that I'm not the most important conversation per I'm sorry, I'm not the most important person in any conversation I'll ever have period. So with that in mind, if somebody else could, if there's a 51% chance that somebody might not want to do what I want them to say or do, then I need to communicate with them in a way that causes them to choose to want to do it. So it is that respect-driven influence process that leads to the results we want. And some people might not feel like they should have to do it or that it takes too much time or that it's unnecessary. But if we fall into that entitlement trap, then all we do is create more stress and more problems for ourselves. What are some common mistakes that you see people making in this process? And not the process of, you know, people who are interrogators or interviewers or what have you, but day-to-day conversation, whether it's at home with our family or whether it's in sales or leadership or managing people, what are some common mistakes that you see that this cognitive process and this, this, the word interrogation is in your bio, but it's, you know, nobody likes that word right away. It triggers. Okay. He's trying to get me to say something I don't want to say, but what are some common mistakes that you see that maybe you could coach us on a little bit to shift? The, I believe the first one is they make the conversation about themselves, either inwardly or outwardly. 
So they, they focus the conversation based on what they want to say, as opposed to what the other person needs to hear. And then they communicate in a way that is framing it around themselves instead of the other person. So they say things like what I need you to do, what you need to do for me, what I think would be best for you. So, or if you could please respond by Wednesday, that would help me. Why should they care about helping you if they have their own problems to solve? So one of the mistakes they make is either internally and or externally making the conversation appear to be about them. And oftentimes it's, they're trying to do the opposite. They just have an opportunity in, in how they operationalize it. Sure. Another one is missing out on the contextual factors of the conversation. Really goes thinking back to what we to, talked about at the beginning with the grandsons. What's the context yes. of the conversation or the situation? Yeah. And in any given, I mean, there's no perfect time for anything, but am I really considering the best time, the best mode, the best, you know, what's the best way to talk to somebody? And now when we talk about the contextual aspects, what else is somebody going through? How many times, especially over the last year in, in your line of work with all the people you coach and support, how many times have you run into people that because of all the stress they're facing through their business, their family, the unknown, people that might be sick, revenue that's gone away, uncertainty, all these things, they are not responding or communicating the way they were 14 months ago. So now if we just look at them and we say, well, what's wrong with this person? What changed with them? They didn't get it. Why are they mad at me? Well, time out. Maybe I should stop and think about what's changed in their world and right. how these factors may be affecting how they're communicating. No conversation happens in a vacuum. Right. None. We carry, like, I've had a great day today, knock on wood. But yeah, exactly. Had I had a stressful day today, a bad day today, a, a plan, a, nothing went to plan, then how I engage with you on this conversation could be completely different because all of those things drag into the next conversation, no matter how hard we try to stop it. And to that end, I'll give you one more because I certainly want to be respectful of your audience's time. One of the things that's important for people to consider, I see I lied, I'm going to do two. Well, I'll still be respectful. You can go three if you want. <laughs> one of the things that's important for people to consider is are they the lowest common denominator? So if I'm in a leadership role, a management role, a business development role, a family role, active in the church, in the community, whatever it is, and I say something to myself along the lines of, it's everybody else's fault. Everybody else has the problem. Everybody, when I talk to people, they don't get it. They don't understand. They don't see it. Like if I talk to, you know, there's a line in a TV show that I will loosely, loosely quote, because there are some words that I probably shouldn't repeat on. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, uh, it's PG. Yeah. But, but basically the line says, if you run into a jerk in the morning, you probably ran into a jerk. But if you run into jerks all day long, you're probably the jerk. Yeah, so lose, I love that. I've heard that too. I don't know the show either, but I and maybe you do. I love that. So for what we try to teach, especially with leaders, is if we're coaching, and for salespeople too, if we're coaching and they say, well, my employees always, my customers always, mm. okay, hang on. How many are we talking about right. over how many occasions, over how many times? Who is the only person all of those conversations have in common? Yeah, what's the common? Oh, you're in all of that? Hmm. Yeah, mm, I love you know, that. That's so good. I'm That's so not good. good at math. Yeah, but I, I can figure like this one gamble, out. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I know where to place my chips. Yeah. And in line with that, and I kind of touched on this earlier, 
one of the things we should also listen to is our internal monologue. And when I give this example, I do want to make it clear that I'm talking about the majority of completely benign professional and personal conversations we have every day. I'm not talking about people who feel like they're being solicited or forced to do something that is entirely against their will. That's not where this is going. So if I need to have a conversation with somebody on my team or with one of my customers or somebody in my family, and I say to myself, well, I shouldn't have to say it this way. Well, congratulations. Number one, I should tap myself on the back because I'm probably right. I shouldn't have yeah. to. But guess what? That's exactly what I need to do. Yeah. So in, in this type of context, anytime we say to ourselves, I shouldn't have to do this, take a second, tap yourself on the back. Congratulations. Good for you. You're right. Then dust it off and go do it because that is now highlighting the exact route we need to take in order to connect with somebody in the way that they need to be connected with. I like that. I like going back to your story about, you know, if, if everybody is, I'll use the term you used a jerk. I've heard it differently. And most people hearing this have as well. It reminds me of the story of a man who's traveling and moving from one city to another. And he goes over a hill and he gets to the top of the hill and there's a man at the top of the hill. And he says, Hey, I'm moving from city A to city B. Can you tell me, do you have, do you know the story? Do you have any experience in city? So he says, do you have any experience in city B? And uh, he goes, well, tell me about the people where you're coming from. And he says, oh, they're great people, salt of the earth, friends for life, but I'm not going to try a job transfer. I have to move and I'm going to really miss the people. And the guy at the top of the hill says, well, that's pretty much what you're going to find where you're going. Great people. Next day, somebody comes from city B, same story going the other direction guy at the top of the hill says, well, tell me about the people in city B. Oh, they're just idiots. They're jerks. I hate them. I couldn't wait to get out of there. And he goes, it's pretty much what you're going to find in city A. You're going to find what you're looking for. So if you are seeing that everybody around you is that jerk, yeah, it might be you. So that's interesting. Yeah. I love that. I, lo- I love, uh, you know, I love stories. Obviously I've made that clear and, and I love hearing your stories, but I learn more through stories as well. And I think great leaders do too. Tell me about, and I mean, I'm, 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 I'm baiting you with how I'm asking that question. Tell me about conversation starters and words that we should say and shouldn't say if we're trying to get someone to open up, whether it's just open up about feelings or open up about committing to something or confessing something or telling the truth. What are some some triggers and things that you should and shouldn't say to get that process rolling? Um, On the shouldn't side, the word you, believe it or not, is one of the most dangerous words in the English language. I mean, I feel like you and I are developing a relationship, so I might get away with things with you that I wouldn't with a stranger or somebody who had more reason to distrust me. Um, But every time I say the word you, and I'd really like to talk to you about how you're feeling and how your emotions are impacting our relationship and what you're going through so I can help you. Every time I say the word you, I'm just poking your self-image. I'm not trying to, but I am. So that's one to avoid. The old... um, I went through a training program a billion years ago for a company I worked for as a young man. And I never forgot this phrase. The woman called it kissing and kicking. They say something really nice Mm. to somebody right before you say something that's not so nice. So that might feel better for us, but it typically makes the kick feel worse for the other person. Like it wouldn't have hurt so much if you just kicked me. You didn't have to juke me and set me up and make me think it's going to feel good to then kick me. You know, the word but is in there as well. You know, and normally, you're such a fun guy to talk to, but today, like, I just, it's that verbal, just, it's a verbal eraser. I've heard it called. Yeah. You say, exactly. but you've just erased all the good stuff. You know, you're, you're on yeah. time all the time. You're working hard. You're doing great. But it's like, I just didn't even hear the kissing. All I'm feeling yeah. is the kicking now. 
The other one that I would add to that list is the inadvertent accusation. So oftentimes if we start a conversation that it, it involves the word you again, but if it starts like, did you, or why didn't you, or have you, or why haven't you, that just feels like an accusation, mm-hmm. even yeah. if we don't mean it that way. You're on the defensive so right away. You know, silly example, our routine here every morning between my wife, myself, and my son's schedule, it's a constant pass off between my wife and I. And we only have one son, one dog, and one cat. So people mm-hmm. multiples, I can only yeah. imagine what it's like for them. But one of the things that we have to remember to do is to feed the dog. Because if we don't, she's going to badger the heck out of us. So if my wife walks by, or let me, let me let's make me the bad guy. There you go. Good so call. If I, Good, if smart I, man, smart man. Husbands, take note. I, I've touched that live wire a few times. I probably should <laughs> nice. have learned quicker. Um, but if I say to Brooke, hey, Brooke, did you feed the dog? In my mind, what I'm thinking is, do I still need to feed the dog? Or has the dog been fed yet? But if I say to her, did you feed the dog? No, I've been busy. Or yes, mm-hmm. I did. Thank you. It can come across as an accusation when I didn't right. mean it that way at all. But instead, if I say, hey, do I still need to feed the dog? Or if I say, hey, has Daisy been fed? Has yet? the dog been now, fed? Yeah. Yeah. Now this isn't about her anymore. It's about me or the dog. So it feels less accusatory. So I, I, for this conversation, I think that's a pretty good don't yeah. list. Yeah. For the do... One of the things that one of the phrases I love to say that carries from my previous life into my current is illustrate before you investigate, give Mm -hmm. to get. And I know that theory certainly isn't unique to me. Many people have it. The way that I try to operationalize that, again, is to think that there's at least a 51% chance that whoever I'm talking to doesn't want to say or do what I want them to say or do. So what I want to do is give them some sort of illustration from my life, my world, my perspective that can resonate with them, that causes them to lower their guard, feel like they can now share with me because I've already shared with them and cause them to make a decision that they otherwise wouldn't. Have. And I know you like stories, so I'm going to share one that's wicked, actually sensitive. There's that Boston in you. Wicked. So, uh, Love it. So when I moved to my current house, I very quickly became extremely close with the gentleman who lived across the street, which made entire sense because he was 82 when I moved in. Hmm. Um, yeah. Widower lived by himself and we, he became like my second father. He and my first father have met a bunch of times. So cool. I'm really comfortable saying that. Um, and I was like an, another child to him. We were very, 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 very close. And over the years, his health declined. And because I was here across the street, firsthand experience and all. So he ended up having to go into a facility for a little while, a rehab facility. And as people decline, it's sad, I guess, in either direction. But for him, his body was betraying him and his mind was incredibly sharp. This guy was smart, beyond smart. So he literally engineered a way to get out of the rehab facility and get home. And for as upset as his daughter and her husband, both his daughters and her husband was about it, I'm like, well, you got to give him credit. Yes, this is the wrong thing to do, but the dude figured out how to swindle himself out and get a ride home. Like, it's not like he snuck out the back door. They brought him home. So let's give credit where credit's due. Um, But really within a day, um, it appeared that he had to go back. Like he just physically wasn't going to be able to take care of himself in his house. And so we got him set up to at least get through the night. The next morning, um, 
his daughter and son-in-law go over there and they're talking to him and they're trying to talk him into going back to the Lincoln Center. So perspective that I'm sure many families can identify with, you still have a very independent, very intelligent man who wants to be in his house because that's his home. Right. And now you have in his mind, forget the fact that they are fully grown adults with their own family, children trying to talk up to him to right. tell him what to do. Like I've spent my whole life telling you what to do. And now you're telling me what to mm -hmm. do in a situation where I don't want to do it. And it was that direct, I know what's best for you. You need to listen to me. I can't do what you need me to do conversation. So they meant the best. They are great people, wholehearted people, but it was coming across as it was all about them. So I finally get the frustrated phone call. Mike, this isn't working. Can you please come help me? So I walked over. Thankfully, they went for a walk. And this is exactly what I said to him. I sat down and first just literally sat at his kitchen table with him. I was like, hey, man, how you doing? And he gave me this look like, you know exactly how that I'm dealing. Yeah, exactly. But I just, yeah. I just let him go. I just let him talk. I didn't say a word for I don't know how many minutes. And I mm -hmm. let him go through all the emotions, all the everything he was feeling. And then I, I will tell you the exact story I told him. I said, hey, Chuck, do you remember, this would probably have been four months prior, when I screwed up the opportunity to buy that brand new black F-150? And he laughs and he hmm. says, yeah, I remember I said, I approached it entirely wrong with the sales guy. I didn't think I could get him to where I wanted him to. So I abandoned my normal approach. Turns out I found out way too late. I probably could have got them there, but because I screwed up the approach, I lost yeah. out on the deal. So when they finally gave me their best offer, it was more money over more years than I wanted to finance. The money wasn't so much the problem, but the years really were. I said, so Chuck, do you remember what I did? And he looked at me and he said, remind me. I said, first, I asked you what you then I asked my dad what he would do. Hmm. Then I asked my father-in-law what he would do. Then I asked my brother what he would do. By the way, I asked my wife like three different times what sure. she would do. And then Chuck, I asked you a second time what you would do. And he said, yeah, I remember. And I said, that night when my wife and I went to bed, my wife looked at me and she said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. You know, I've got everybody's opinion. I got to think it through. And she looked at me and she said, Mike, when was the last time you asked six people for hmm. their opinion on anything? Wow. And I looked at her and I said, you're right. I'm not buying the truck. That's big. And Chuck looked at me and all I said was Chuck, sometimes the more we try to rationalize a decision, the more obviously I'm going to get upset, the more obvious it is that it's the wrong thing to do. And he literally bowed his head and looked at me and he said, will you help me pack my bags? Wow. And, and we had him back in the facility where, you know, the story goes down from there. He wasn't with us too many months more after that. So in, in that scenario, again, to get back to what we talked about, let the conversation come to us. Don't force it illustrate before you investigate, communicate with people in a way that they need to hear what they need to hear in order to make the decision we want them to make. Problem solved. Yeah. So we, what, I, what I love there is we tend to ask and ask and ask until we get confirmation that what we're thinking is the right thing. And if we're not hearing it, eh, maybe it's not the right thing. And the more we go chasing that confirmation, like our, our brains, for as wonderful as they are, loathe discomfort. Yeah. And we'll either take shortcuts or go to great lengths to avoid discomfort. And one of the ways we do that is we justify and rationalize everything, whether it was buying an expensive TV or saying something silly at a dinner party or missing out on buying an F-150. 
we rationalize and justify it. So it was the truck I wanted. Make no mistake. It was the yeah, truck I wanted, truck. which is why I took a flyer on it to begin with. I was like, yeah. I got nothing to lose. But the terms weren't good. The terms mm-hmm. were awful. So, yeah. if, I mean, if I drove the truck for 200,000 miles, it probably wouldn't have mattered. But what are the odds that's going to happen? Yeah. So for me to continue to chase that confirmation, I couldn't see it because I was wrapped up in my own head. But my wife, being as smart and observant as she is and knowing me as well as she does, was like, the more you're chasing this confirmation, the more that should be a sign that it's not the right thing to Mm -hmm. do. And the same can be said for business. You know, how many times does a leader get an idea that they think is great and may have some merit to it, but they want their team's input? So the more no's they get, the harder they chase it instead of saying, well, wait a minute, maybe there really is something here that I'm not thinking about. Yeah, that's so true. How do you turn this off? I mean, I'm curious. I'd love to be a fly on the wall at Thanksgiving dinner at your home, you know, the family around the table. And, you know, do you get that? I know I've talked to, you know, I, my mom was a therapist. So I, I spent my fair share of feeling like I was being psychoanalyzed as a teenager now only to look back 40 years later and realize yeah, she was probably right most of the time. But how do you, in conversation just in your day to day or with Blanca Cobb, who I alluded to earlier, we chatted the other day about you know, she's an expert on nonverbal communication. Obviously, you've got a lot of that in your training as well. What's it like? Just I'm mean, just just personal. Just take it away from a professional for a second. Just the feeling and casual conversation. Do they do do family members or friends or colleagues around just feel, hey, Mike, turn it off. I'm not I'm not a witness here. For me, well, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from one of my former teammates, and I would give them credit, but I honestly can't remember which one it was. It was Mm -hmm. probably Wayne or Brett, but I honestly can't remember which one it was. Um, Said, don't ask questions you don't want answers Mm. to. Love that. I love that. That's that's such good advice. So so that's one that I definitely live by. And the other, I guess, the other kind of two rules of thumb for me, one is understand what's important and what's not important. So... And in, in tied into that is there's a really thin line between who is or isn't the jerk in any given situation. Sure. So if we're sitting around the dinner table or if there's a bunch of us hanging out at a pub back when we were legally allowed to hang out at pubs yeah. or, you know, we're in some kind of social situation. If somebody is exaggerating a story or if somebody is retelling it differently than it happened or if somebody is clearly making something up or fudging something for their own personal benefit, if anybody else picks up on that, well, now the person telling the story is the metaphorical jerk. But the minute I call them on it, you become, I put yeah, that hat on, yeah. right? So, so it becomes what's important. Um, so for me, the, the vast majority of conversations I have every day, they're not important. They're your yeah. normal, regular conversations that you have. They're, I have a very tight circle of people who I consider to be my family, friends, loved ones, and I trust them all beyond any degree mm-hmm. of measurability. So I got no reason to look for it. Something, right. Sometimes something might jump out. Okay, it jumps out. Um, but now as the conversations gather in importance, does it involve the safety of my family? Does it involve a business opportunity? Does it involve somebody new entering a circle that I'm currently a part of? And I may have the opportunity to be able to suss out if this person's more of a problem or not, then okay, now they become important. But then if somebody makes, if I make these observations, the next problem is what do you do with them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so do I yeah. just kind of file it away for another day? Do I find personal entertainment in it mm-hmm. and forget about it? Or do I find it valuable enough that it changes decisions I make and or I share it with other people? So it, it really comes down to 
understanding the importance or the casual nature of the interaction and then the importance or value of the observation in regards to the greater value of the relationships. And knowing your core values. If it if it's yeah. if it's within my core values and it has an impact on these, then yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go there. But if yeah. it's just casual conversation, you know, oh I didn't feed the dog, you know, you're not gonna grill down and say, why didn't you feed the dog? So yeah, it's it, that that's 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 great. I love that. Hello, my name is John Royce Lynch, founder and CEO of PCMA Private Client. As a former professional surfer and native of Southern California, I have always enjoyed Wahoo's fish tacos. When the pandemic hit, the response by Wahoo's was unparalleled, creating the California Love Drop by supporting frontline workers and those in need. On behalf of the PCMA private client community and our amazing team, it is an honor to be able to support this noble effort. To lend a hand and to learn more, please visit californialovedrop.org. Before I ask the how do they get in touch with you, talking about Inquasive, the name, I love it. I, It triggers some pretty cool emotion and thoughts in me, but I'd like to know your thought process behind the name and where it came from. Well, thank you. Um, I, do hey, like that's, a lot. I created the name to try to do that. So did it. At least mission accomplished with once. me. Yeah, exactly. One time it's <laughs> so good. Yeah. Ching. One's better than zero. I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. Um, so I was super fortunate that in a prior life, I was engaged with a group of geniuses in San Diego on a year long engagement. And part of that group, they had a world-class marketing firm come in. And I got to watch them go through their process for how they name companies. And I took copious notes. Mm -hmm. So when it came time for me to do this, I was able to pull out their notes and follow what they, what I saw them do. So to give credit where credit's due, I mean, it wasn't entirely me. Um, but I, first it started out with what am I trying to achieve by naming the company? Like, everything's got to be goal oriented. So I wanted something that was unique. I wanted something that was ownable. Like I could own the URL and all those other things without having to pay some stranger $50,000 for right. it. Um, but I also wanted something that was descriptive, accurately descriptive of what I do and created curiosity because if people are curious, they'll ask. So the name almost becomes a clearinghouse in and of itself. If somebody's not interested, they won't ask. I don't have to talk to them. If somebody is interested, they ask. Now I'm right. in a conversation. One cleared. Um, so for me, literally what I did for anybody that may want to go through this process is I figured there were three ways that I could go. I could use words that already existed and preferably try to find one or two that would work. I could create an acronym. Mm -hmm. sure. um, I guess there was four. Another one is I could use like, you know, group or associates or something like that. I didn't want to use my name. I, that yeah. was something I didn't want to do from the jump. Or the third or the fourth, whichever number I'm up to now, yeah. I told you I'm not good at math. <laughs> I was told there would be no math today, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you lied to me. Yeah. Um, is I could create my own word. So that was the way I ended up going. And what I did over a series of evenings, and maybe a few Guinness, sorry, Hector, no tequila. Yeah, uh, that's was right. I wrote, I wrote down <laughs> all the words I could think of that in any way, shape or form tangentially interfaced with what I do. And I whittled that list and whittled that list and whittled that list. And I kept coming back to persuasive, persuasion and inquire. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what I did was I took the word inquire and the word persuasive and married them together to come up with inquasive because we, we teach people how to use strategic ethical observation and persuasion mm -hmm. skills. So we inquire persuasively based on our observations and that's how we ended up where we are. 
it, it, it feels like it's actually a word. I mean, I look at that over your left shoulder for those that are watching. It's on your background and I see it on all your materials. Obviously, it's your company. And I I actually looked it up when I first heard about you from Hector. I was like, well, inclusive, that, that's a word. But what is it? But, you know, obviously it's not, but it is. I mean, for you it is. And it, I just, yeah, it, it's powerful and the process worked and, and, uh, and uh, kudos to those that were contributing to ultimately your decision to, to come up with that name. I like that a lot. So, all right. So, so um, you work a lot with companies. You obviously have worked with in the, in the um, law enforcement world, you work in sales, you work leadership and so forth. What's, what's your ideal customer? Like what, I don't mean like the name of the company that you're hoping to bag that elephant tomorrow when you pick up the phone, but is there an industry or is there an area that you, you really like to swim in that pool? I'm 100% industry agnostic. Okay. What we do is people driven. So you know, off the top of my head, distribution, manufacturing, SaaS, uh, high tech, medical, universities, construction. You know, I, I can go on and on with the different industries that I've worked with. It really is a people-centric communication-based series of programs that we offer. So the industry isn't as important as is the people involved. So for me, the ideal client starts with senior executives who value education and who see the opportunity to, pos to really create a culture of communication for their organization, both internally and externally. And especially senior executives who are looking to create that culture of communication that is consistent across their internal leadership across their sales negotiation, external communications, and across their candidate interviewing. Because the although we have very, and for those involved customer service as well, because although there are commonalities between all of those training programs that we have, there are very unique applications for each one as well. So when we can, when we do work with our clients who we can get those foundational pieces in advance, then we can start doing those role specific pieces after that, it becomes a hub and spoke approach. I'm sure like any person who runs a company and I get it as well, people contact me for a variety of reasons, but I could tell you what the top two or three are. When your phone rings or that email bell goes off in your inbox, what's, what are some of the most common reasons why people are reaching out to you? I get, often I feel like both ends of the spectrum. I get either, I have a team that I feel is mostly A players doing doing things well. I need to give them something new. I need to give them another differentiator. I need to do something in order to keep escalating their development. I don't want them to plateau. The other is I have an issue or an opportunity. You know, we're struggling to hire the right people. We're struggling to really connect with our customers and help them understand why we do what we do. There's a disconnect between our managers and our leaders. And we have either developing leaders that we need to get ready to get to the next step, or we have executives in place that have inadvertently created this chasm, chasm in between themselves and the team that, that we need to resolve. Yeah, cool. Yeah, chasm, chasm, niche, niche. I don't know how to say certain things. That's I can't right. do math and I can barely speak. You can barely, yeah, exactly. Other than that, you're, you're a rock star. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> good thing. Good thing you're pretty, right? Good thing you're Thank good you. at what you Thank do. You. Yeah, there you go. Bald is beautiful. Right? That's right. Absolutely. Well, that's what I'm hoping because someday, you know, right now it's a, it's a race between thinning and, and graying and thinning and thinning is winning. But um, well, actually graying is. 
so okay so how do we reach you we want to um people have listened to this interview they're they're intrigued they want to learn more either have you come speak or work with their company or what have you what's the best way to reach michael reddington I appreciate you asking. The website is inquasive.com. If they're not watching the video, that's I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E.com. I'm on LinkedIn at Michael Reddington CFI. I'm begrudgingly on Twitter. Uh, hmm. So you might see me post some stuff there, but that's not a great way to, to get a hold of me either. The email is mreddington at inquasive.com. Um, and I certainly would be very happy to have a conversation with anyone who is interested, as you said, in partnering on customizing some training programs for their organization, or even just having a conversation to help them navigate a, a significant issue that they're currently dealing with that can set the stage for how they can navigate future similar issues. You're physically located in North Carolina, but you work everywhere. Yes. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate this conversation. I've learned a lot and it's been a, a thrill for me to have a conversation with you again. I, I, more than learning and applying a lot of this hopefully in my own life and with my clients the interviews i love the most are the ones where i truly can say at the end i feel like i have a new friend and i feel like i do in this conversation with you the ones we've had in the past and then again today um and i have a lot of questions a lot of things personally that i want to ask you about some situations with work and a few clients that i'm talking to where i, I need to approach them maybe slightly differently than i have been so your phone's going to ring again not today but soon it's going to ring again. And I want to, you know, certainly encourage those that are listening and watching today to, to reach out to Michael. And I'll put all of, again, your contact information in the notes when we send this out and promote it through social media and promote it through our normal channels. So hopefully we can get the phone to ring a little bit more. Um, I know it's been really, really hard on just about everybody during COVID during these last, you know, 12, 13 months that we've been battling this. Is there something, I have two last questions for you. The first one is, is there a lesson you've learned personally in these last 12 months about anything that wouldn't have happened if not for these last 12 months, the way they've been, that you hope you'll take with you? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I've learned so much. I, I yeah. mean, I'm sure like so many people, my wife and I laugh when we talk to people and like, well, with all the downtime, what new skill have you learned? Like, hmm. well, I could plan it is yeah, their yeah. downtime. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, we're, mine's gone the opposite way. I feel yeah. like I have so much less time with everybody being at home and, you know, balancing family and work. And my wife has a huge job that was severely impacted. I mean, she's still in position, but because of her position, yeah. what she does was severely impacted. Um, so I think for me, you know, the you know, really solidifying my dedication to her and, and supporting her and my son as well, because although he's young, you know, really getting to spend the extra time with him and, and navigate this whole situation with them both has been the most important by far. Uh, from, from a professional standpoint, I, I'm going to reiterate something that I believe a lot of people already know, especially with what I do. It was a wonderful opportunity just to give and let the situation take care of itself. So for me, teaching people how to navigate very sensitive, awkward, difficult, uncomfortable conversations is what I do for a living. Mm -hmm. Well, starting on of all days, March 17th, 2020, when the world gets shut down, could they at least give us St. Patrick's Day is all I'm saying? I know, exactly. Uh, <laughs> we can't even go out on St. Patrick's Day. I know, that hit me as well. Um, but it was really an opportunity for me to say, well, with all the in-person programs getting shut down, and especially in the beginning, organizations, you know, are we going to invest in virtual or are we not? 
just taking the opportunity to give to people and say, I'm not worried about it. We've had this relationship. There's a way to help. I'm here to help. And we'll just let the chips fall where they may over time. I think for me, really, and it was an easy, it was a non-decision, but Mm -hmm. committing to that and just looking at the relationships that I've built and who knows what may or may not come out of them. But for me, I do truly believe that it will, that was the right decision to make. And I would have loved to have made it under different circumstances, um, but, but certainly feel good about it. Yeah. I've sort of uh, affectionately referred to 2020 and now these first couple months of 21 as the free sample year, you go to Costco or one of these stores and they're giving out samples of the food so that you'll go buy more. I I truly believe that experts like yourself and so many other people I've had on the podcast and people that have come on some of the workshops that we've done and even just conversations and even some of the things that I'm doing in, in my work with clients, we're giving away a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge and we're receiving a lot for free. And so I hope that those that are watching and listening will recognize that You've just gotten a, a great education from Michael about, you know, really how to get to truth and how to get to the answers that you're looking for, but to really empathize with the person that you're talking to and not from, a, you know, I'm going to interrogate you. I know that's in your term and, and so forth in, in, in the title, but um, I'm, I'm hoping that the, the giving value first that you're doing here today and that a lot of us in the world are doing because we have to and have no other option will come back and help. And I really believe it will. I, I believe that if, as we give value, we get value back tenfold. And uh, I do. And, and especially in this situation, yeah, I mean, down the road, there could be that benefit that we're talking about. But especially now, how do I say no to people that actually need the help? Right. Like, they're in the middle of it right now. Well, I mean, back in March, April, they were. Um, people are still in the middle we're of it. We're still in, in it, yeah. As well. Um, so how do you say no to people that legit need it? Like they're, they're not being greedy. They're not trying to take advantage. Like they literally need it. Well, then let's do it. I mean, it's just, I was on a different show. Um, in actually one of the very first podcasts I was ever on with another gentleman out in SoCal. And he asked me, I forget what his exact question was, but it was something along the lines of what are my business principles or mission statement, or I don't want to misrepresent the question. But for me, it literally, I don't understand how for everybody, it can't just be do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. If it's any more complicated than that, I have a difficult time understanding why just do the right thing. Yeah. There you go. That's uh, well, that's Spike Lee. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. So quoting yeah. the great philosopher Spike Lee. So appreciate that. Yeah, and it's kind of that just say yes. You know, so many people I'm talking to right now, sure, I'll do it. Happy to help. You know, happy to help seems to be one of the themes that I'm hearing all the time too. And asked you to be on the show today, of course. You know, there's never even a, never even a, a, a moment where I think you doubted it. Well, as, as you know, with my last name being Hart, the name of the podcast is called From the Heart. Um, certainly play on the last name. I didn't get a, a dedicated team to help me come up with Inquasive, but you know, this oh, was- I, I cheated from the dedicated team I watched when I oh, came up with this. There one, you go. So. Right on. Well, you, you still, <laughs> you, you tapped into my wife and I talked about this one and I've had a blog by the same name for a while, but you know, with the last name and really the objective of each of the interviews that I do is to really get to the heart of the matter of why people do what they do. So I'm just going to wrap now that we've heard a little bit about what you do and how to reach you and, and your passions and what you do for a living and some great stories. So thank you very, very much. I'm going to finish today simply by just saying, Michael Reddington, what's in your heart? 
I, I think it ties back to what I just said, you know, do the right thing. For me, when I look back at all of the stages that my life has gone through and they compared, you know, we all have our different experiences. Um, but I, I, I think back of all the places I could have ended up and where I am now and the privilege that I have with the ability to impact others in a positive way. Um, and so for me, it is, it's, it's scratching the surface. It's leaving that mark. It is, you know, how many people say it, leave the world better than you found it. You know, I don't care who you are. I care what the value you bring to society is. And that's, I'm absolutely not perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and plenty of people who might hear this might is. say, well, wait a minute, Mike, I remember a time and they probably do remember it. Right. Um, especially for where I'm at now in my life it is how, how do I scratch the surface? How do I leave that mark? How do I impact as many people as I can? And even selfishly, as I was logging into this call, I thought, how awesome is it that, or hopefully awesome is it that I have conversations like this that are recorded. So someday my son can listen to them maybe not in his teens or twenties when, you know, it's dad and son, but someday yeah. when he grows up, you know, he can, he can have this record of, of who his dad was and, and what his dad did. So, I mean, though, I, I would say that's what's in my heart. 